I am thrilled with today's guest. I am a huge fan, I must admit, to just kind of get this interview off uh, uh, on a very biased foot. Uh, Piers Morgan is a legendary name in journalism, both broadcast and print. He started out at the youngest editor of a national uh, British newspaper at 29, and since then has done about everything you can do. Uh, he's currently the host of Uncensored on Fox Nation here at Global uh, interview show. It's uh, on Talk TV, and and he's done everything you could possibly do in this business. Uh, hosting uh, Good Morning Britain, uh, taking over Larry King's mantle on CNN, um, winning the Celebrity Apprentice. Uh, it just, it just, I, I can't go through it all. It's, it's exhausting. America's Got Talent host, editor of numerous <laughs> newspapers, author of ten books. I could go on and on. Welcome, my friend. It's actually quite exhausting now you put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. I'm going to start with it. You know, you were, you're one of the few guys that truly doesn't give a shit. Truly. I, I'm going to just, this was a great quote. I, this is 10 years old from The Guardian. That punchable face, that invincible self-confidence, that willingness to soak up even revelant abuse. Piers Morgan is sort of brilliant. And he's kind of awful. And he seems to embody in his curiously weightless way, something of the temper of the times. I kind of like that. I like that. That would be a good epitaph on my tombstone, yeah. I, look, I think, as you know, Donnie, better than most, the, the modern media age is a is a tricky beast. You know, it can be ferocious. It can be relentless. We live in a social media era where the slightest error is amplified all around the world. Uh, you've got to have a thick skin to, to exist in this world. And you've got to have a degree of shamelessness and I happily plead guilty to that. I think it's the only way you get through it. You know, it's a, it's a tough old world. I revel in it. I enjoy the ups. I quite enjoy the downs in a weird uh, sadomasochistic way. So, it's you know, it's been quite a ride. Uh, but I've, I've got to say that the best decision I ever took was when I was six or seven years old. And my mother remembers me saying I wanted to be a journalist because that that passion that I've had for journalism has actually driven all the things that I've done in my life. And I've had a great a great time doing it. Do you think we're I, there's a there's a big difference between British interviewing uh, interviews and journalism and what goes on here that we're a little little soft a little uh, little I don't want to use the wrong word uh, we're, we're kind of pussies here a little bit in a certain way. You know, oddly, I think American journalists have become more polite as British journalists have got less polite. And it always used to be that we were seen as a kind of, you know, the, the, the quintessential James Bond sounding British gentleman. Now I'm not so sure. I think we have a reputation now for being the global interview Rottweilers, for better or worse. And Americans, yeah, the only criticism I would say is I think you've become more British. You've become very polite. Speaking of polite, uh, big news last week, Rupert Murdoch stepped down. You were your boss for many, 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 for 30 years in different iterations. Uh, you you sent out a Twitter last week speaking incredibly high of him, which is not surprising, but uh, obviously a controversial figure, obviously one of the most important figures in mass communications of the last century, uh, if not the most, I could, I could argue. Uh, give me your favorite Rupert Murdoch story that maybe we haven't heard before. You know, it's more with Rupert. I mean, I, I uh, ran the News of the World for him, which was the biggest selling newspaper in the world at the time. I was 28 years old. So probably my favorite story. And it's really a story about, I think, being bold in the moment uh, at the right time. Uh, I always say that my history with Rupert, which goes back 30 years, uh, he made my career at the start, and then he brought me back to the biggest deal of my life a couple of years ago. And I've been incredibly 
uh, grateful for that. But I remember a dinner in London, and I was just the I was like doing the equivalent of page six on the Sun, called a, the Bazaar Column. I was twenty seven years old, and I get invited to a, a dinner with other Sun executives and Rupert, and it's near his flat in London. And we have this dinner, and it gets to the stage where he's had a couple of glasses of wine. I've had some wine. Everyone's had some wine, apart from the current editor of the newspaper at the time, our boss, a guy called Kelvin McKenzie, who wasn't drinking. He was having a little dry January. So he kept saying no, 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 no. So it came to the crucial moment at the end of the meal when, after I know, I, I thought, I don't know why I'm here. I'm 27. I'm doing the popcorn. Who cares what I have to say? So I was quite emboldened to express my views. And then it came to, would I want a liqueur? So they started, crucially, by going to Kelvin McKenzie and saying, would you like a liqueur? Because he wasn't drinking and hadn't done all night. He said, no. So everyone took their lead from the boss. No, 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 no liqueur for me. No, 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 no liqueur. And he got to me and I looked at the, the wine waiter and I said, well, what would you recommend? And he said, the peach brandy is good, sir. I went, really? I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll have a peach brandy. And the guy next to me was a guy called Stuart Higgins. And he said, yeah, I'll have a peach brandy. And then Rupert memorably said, yeah, I love peach brandy, make it three. <laughs> and in that moment, <laughs> every other face around the table dropped because they thought, oh, no, we should have had the peach brandy. Now, I'm not saying that it was the definitive deciding factor, but within a month, I was made editor of the News of the World, the biggest selling newspaper in the world, and Stuart replaced Kelvin as the editor of The Sun. Kelvin went to work for Sky Television. So I've always believed it wasn't about peach brandy, but it might have been about having the boldness in the moment to put your hand up and go, give a shit, I'm right. in. Uh, yeah, and I do think yeah. that those are the kind of people, when I became a newspaper editor myself, I actually looked for what I call the peach brandy brigade. Who are the ones who are going to put their hands up and stand up and say what they want or what they believe? you know, who are going to express their opinions, who are not going to run with the sheep. And I do think that's an absolutely critical part of life now. I think there's a lot of young people seem to really struggle with regular life. And I always say to them, be yourself, be true to yourself. And then if you do screw up or you get things wrong or you lose a job or you lose a girlfriend, whatever it may be, uh, at least you can look yourself in the mirror and think, well, you know what? I was true to myself. If you are not true to yourself, and you try and be someone you're not, and then you screw up, it's the worst feeling in the world. Well, one of the, we're going to talk a lot about Trump, but one of the things that I always felt that was that made him so, so appealing was his authenticity. I, I mean, that that's a word that's overused. It's no question. It's an important word in brand. But before we get down, I just want one more thing on Murdoch. And, and look, I'm sitting here on the Upper East Side of New York, and if, if we had a, a little coffee clutch right now, we'd be talking about uh, the evil emperor and how he created hate in this country and stoked it, and uh, dishonest news, everything from, you know, having to pay three quarters of a billion dollars in Dominion and the, the the dark side of Rupert Murdoch. What do you say to that? Look, he's very aware of that. I don't think he cares. I think he's always tried to do the right thing. I think he believes in uh, popular journalism in all its guises. I think he's proven himself, in my opinion, he's proven himself to be the most bold and risk-taking media tycoon of them all. Uh, I always think that the mythology around him very rarely stacks up to what you actually find if you meet him. You know, I've always said about him that I think he's the most curious person I know. And funny enough, there was someone from a, a Scottish newspaper on the airways after this announcement was made saying he remembers being in a car with Rupert 
driving around rural Scotland. And all he remembers is the constant bombardment of questions about architecture, about uh, agriculture, about sport, about religion, peppering, 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 wanting to acquire information which might inform his business. That was my experience. And I remember I was 28 when I ran the News of the World. Rupert would ring me for half an hour most Saturdays. And it was like a masterclass in journalism and business. He never told me what to put in the paper. That was always left to me. He might give me an opinion after the event, but he certainly never directed what I was doing. He just trusted me to do it properly as he does all his executives. Um, but he would certainly express opinions afterwards. Uh, but my, my honest thing with him is that the mythology is often driven by people who've literally never spent a second in his, in his company. And I don't think he cares either way. He's never tried very hard to dispel the myths that have built up, but he certainly built one of the all-time most successful uh, media companies the world has ever seen. And that ultimately, for me, will be his abiding legacy. And, you know, I've worked at CNN. I've watched MSNBC, always when you're on it, of course, Donnie. Um, you know, I've watched <laughs> a lot of cable news in America. And I, I have a view as a Brit that there's a lot of issues with all cable news in America. There's a lot Absolutely. of bias, a lot of partisanship. Um, and I, I just think that the, the, I like watching it in plurality. When I get to my home in L.A., I like nothing I like more than getting uh, off the plane, getting to my house, turning on the TV and spending an hour with CNN, an hour with Fox, an hour with MSNBC, seeing where everyone's coming from. And I, I'm happy about that. I think there's a great plurality of opinion in, in America expressed by very strident people. The problem is people don't watch the way you watch. Uh, I mean, that, that we'd be a better place if everybody spent an hour on each network. And it, unfortunately, people are consuming bes bespoke media today. Correct. But I do think that those who only watch one network, I'm not sure that you can honestly say at MSNBC that they're not getting a form of partisan journalism. They are. Of course. I'm not sure absolutely. you can say that CNN's coverage of the Trump years became increasingly partisan, which would never have been allowed when I worked there. So I think there's a lot of issues with a lot of the way that all news is done. But personally... I think uh, if I was an American, never, never forget the fact you still have a fantastically free and vibrant press. You know, try going to a country where they don't have that. Try going to Russia and see how the, the media operate there. So for all its faults, and American media like British media has a lot of faults, there's a lot to be proud of and a lot to salute and aggressive, fearless, you know, often opinion-led journalism. I, I like opinion-led journalism. I like smart journalists expressing opinions. I like it when I watch you going after Trump or whatever it may be. I may not agree with you all the time. I do a lot of the time. Uh, but I like I like visceral opinion. And I think one of the bigger problems in, in the world right now is that people are fearful of expressing their own honestly held opinions. They're fearful of being cancelled. They're fearful of being abused, fearful of being ostracized by their peer group. And that is ridiculous. How democratic societies like America and Britain have got to that place is scary. Let's talk about your relationship with Trump, and it's it's been a long one, a complicated one. Um, celebrity Apprentice, it started there. Uh, you've interviewed him many times. And you, I don't want to say you were on the Trump bandwagon until January 6th, but you were certainly, um, I'll say, a soft supporter of him. Is that fair to say? Uh, and talk to me about your, your longstanding feelings about this man. So it's interesting with Trump. So I, I first met him when I was on America's Got Talent. He came uh, to be a star guest. And he was very friendly. And we had a good chat. And he was fascinated. That I used to run a big paper for Rupert Murdoch. Um, and he was engaging. He was funny. Uh, and I liked it. 
Like, I make no bones about that. I liked him. He's a great character. I, I, by the way, I go way back with him, and I always say he's charming and disarming and charismatic and fun to yeah. be around. Not, not a question. He's very, very, very charismatic. So I did Celebrity Apprentice in 2008 and I ended up winning it. So I spent an awful lot of time with Trump, you know, three hours a night in the boardroom, never mind anything else. And he was a very different kind of character in the boardroom to what I see when he was in the White House. He was far less bombastic. He was far more um, empathetic, actually, to people. If he felt like they were really getting chewed up, he would often show them real empathy. I never saw that when he was president. I think he tried to play the big tough guy in the White House, and I always said to him, "Why don't you just be a bit more empathetic? Just you can have your you can have your cake and eat it here. You can be tough, but you can also never forget the the, the carrot with the stick, right?" Um, and I felt that he did. So I then went to uh, CNN replaced Larry King, as you said earlier. And I interviewed Trump probably 30, 40 times at CNN. And he was always a great interview. He always great interview. did great, great ratings. Yeah. Um, I, I always enjoyed him. He, he had a crackling kind of charisma and electricity. I would argue with him. and He was fine about that. Um, I got on very well with him. He would ring me quite regularly for a chat about life. And we, we, we became, I would say, quite good friends. Then he runs for president. And obviously, when people step into the political arena like that, then immediately things get complicated for any friendships because either you completely agree with everything he's saying or you're going to have issues with what he's doing or saying. And I would say that early on, when he was running in 2016, all I kept saying to people was, I never told Americans how to vote, but I kept saying, I think he's going to win. He's going to win. You were one of the early guys. You were one of the early guys to call him a winner. You were very, very early on. Yeah. Well, I wrote a column for the Daily Mail, actually, on the day he, he announced he was running. And everyone was laughing. Everyone was mocking him. Everyone was dismissing it as a stunt and so on. And I wrote a column which has stood the test of time, saying, look, for all his faults, uh, I think Trump has a very good chance of winning. He tends to have the last laugh on this stuff. And he has that television power, which is so important now in the world of global politics. He knows television better than any political candidate I've ever seen. And he's able to to use that power and use that knowledge to command television attention. And if you can do that, as he's proven now, despite all these indictments, all these criminal charges, all that has given him, and he knows this better than anyone, is massive amounts of TV coverage. He can play the victim. He can call it a witch hunt. And guess what? His polls go through the roof. I mean, it doesn't, it defies any logic it defies any normality of politics. Normally, any one of these things would finish a political career or a campaign. But in Trump's case, it fuels him. And if you want to know why, you go back to his book, The Art of the Deal, and you'll see Trump talking about, you know, the way to win in life. If somebody punches you, you punch them 10 times harder. You right. never give up. You keep moving forward. All that stuff, all those are qualities he has, which I have never seen in such abundance in one political candidate. Now, there's a downside, as we saw. So he wins, and he only starts to do some stuff which I agreed with, and then he began to do stuff I didn't agree with. Interestingly, when the four years were up, I went back and counted my Daily Mail columns about President Trump, and it was about 50-50. And I would honestly say, looking back on his tenure, that that's, that's not far off actually what an impartial observer would say about the Trump years. There were many things he did which never got the credit which I felt he deserved. The way he went after ISIS was one, the way he didn't start any wars anywhere was one. You know, I think the uh, interesting relationships he built with traditional enemies, 
it may have grated with people on the left. You know, I, I identify as a liberal to this day. Um, but there were lots of things where I just thought he did some interesting stuff and his unpredictability and his charisma. But Piers, wasn't that overwhelmed by his pure hateful uh, way of, of dividing us and going after whether it was build a wall, whether it was lock her up, whether it was uh, you know Muslim ban, whether it was there are good people on both sides of the arguments in Charlottesville, whether it's making fun of a disabled journalist. I mean, I, we, I, you know the list. I can go on and on and on. So doesn't that Trump? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was about to come to the butt. Uh, the other half of all my columns were very censorious after a number of the issues you've just raised. And you can go back and check. And I always try to be completely impartial and just took a view, what do I think of this? So on the Muslim ban, I hammered him. You know, on uh, some of the rhetoric stuff, I hammered him. I thought it was disgraceful that he couldn't even pay a, a proper tribute to people like Senator McCain or Colin mm-hmm. Powell without trashing them immediately. They died. Just basic civility of office. You know, I felt that there were lots of things that he was doing which I didn't agree with. I felt in COVID, it brought out the worst in him. He wasn't able to act as comforter in chief to the American people. All he cared about were the market, stock markets tanking and the economy tanking and people blaming him and it may be costing them the election, not realizing that had he shown more empathy to the American people, he might well have risen uh, and ridden that wave to, to win the election. So I thought he made a number of missteps there. I thought he did some terrible things like telling people to inject themselves with bleach in the middle of a pandemic, which was obviously completely cretinous. And I said so. In fact, that's when he unfollowed me on Twitter. It was when I told him to stop with these batshit crazy ideas was my headline. Um, so I, I, I never, ever avoided hammering Trump when I felt he deserved it. Um, but at the same time, you know, I interviewed him uh, for the first of my shows on Piers Morgan Uncensored. And I told him to his face, I do not believe the election was stolen in 2020. I believe you lost it fair and square. And your constant squealing about it is actually getting pathetic. Um, I don't know why you do it, but you've got to produce evidence or shut up. And he went mad and called me a fool seven times and it all blew up as a big story. So I think I've tried to be fair with him, notwithstanding the fact that in the Trump world, nobody wants anyone to be fair. Either you have the MAGA crowd who don't want to hear any criticism of him and will believe anything he tells them, or you have what I would call, with great respect, the MSNBC crowd, which is relentlessly anti-everything Trump says and does and stands for, perhaps doesn't give him credit when he deserves it because they feel in the totality of Trump, you shouldn't give him credit for anything because of the bad stuff. And I sit somewhere between the two where I'm not an American citizen. I don't, I can't vote in American elections. So I look at him as someone I know very, very well. I see the best and worst of his traits come out and I see them to this day. Uh, But I don't think he's the devil that some people like to depict him as. I do. I I do. I think he's... Okay, when people call him a new Hitler, I'm like, come on, Hitler... Hitler killed 12 million people. So when people use that kind of analogy, I think it's done. But nor do I think he's been uh, an undivisive force. He has, clearly. Clearly, you can see so many parallels to the path that the Hitlers and the Mussolinis know. He has not ordered a genocide. But the the, the fascist leanings and his ability... I, I just think he's a despicable human being in the way that people... By the way, he's very talented, he's very successful, and you have to give him his credit. He's an evil genius, actually. But I do think he's evil. I, I do think he is capable of the worst of what a man can be capable of. Hasn't done things, but I think he's capable of almost anything, frankly. I, I would take issue with that. I think he is a supreme narcissist. He loves everything to be about him. I think his rhetoric uh, can often be deeply divisive and inflammatory. But if you actually look at his actions, 
it's hard to point to anything in his four-year tenure that were, you would categorize as evil. What would you say he did that was evil on comparison with um, Hitler or Mussolini? Well, no, I'm not. I'm not saying his evil is on a is on a level of Hitler. I'm saying he's capable of anything, and I'm just saying his is his 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 bullying and his ability to create hate of the other, and that's basically the foundation of any fascist, and that was the foundation of anybody to to become an autocrat is create an other. And I think that's evil, frankly, when you create whether the other is the Mexican, the other is the Muslim. But I think the hatred, I think the hatred towards Trump has been a pretty uh, unprecedented too. I mean, there's no doubt that it goes he both faced ways, yes. uh, a overwhelmingly hostile media to Trump. And that's one of the reasons he behaves the way he does. Because if you get it, you read his book, it's all in there. If you punch him, he's going to punch you 10 times harder. Mm-hmm. So this is the way he conducts himself in business. He has done for 50 years as a real estate trader. It made him a billionaire and he's carried on punching. And that's what he does. He's a, he's a kind of verbal uh, pugilist when it comes to business. And he sees all this as business. So I don't think he's evil. I certainly don't think he's angelic. I don't think he's, um, but I don't think he's someone that should be underestimated in terms of his ability to potentially win again. And as this election cycle continues, I think if Joe Biden, honestly, if Joe Biden is the Democrat nominee, Trump will win. So, I mean, Democrats watching this need to really wake up and smell the cappuccino because Biden is a walking, talking disaster. I was on the air last week saying this, that Trump can win. But, you know, like if people don't see that, they're not getting it. I think the migrant problem here and the crime problem are things that that they will sink their teeth into. I think you walk around New York, it feels different. And that's when people start to do irrational things. And my fear is if Trump wins again, it'll be nothing like we've seen. Our democracy truly, truly will be in peril. And he says it, autocrats say it. He says, I mean, even simple things, little things like, uh, me on Morning Joe. I mean, he's already said that he would want the FCC reporting to him. I mean, you want to know what lack of freedom start to look like, put this guy in office again. But to your point, it can absolutely happen. Yeah, it can. And I do think America, thankfully, has great checks and balances across its systems, which actually did uh, put, you know, prevent him from doing what you might categorize as, as really bad stuff. I mean, I think, look, so, look I, I would hope that if Trump does win again, he might pivot to a slightly different character. But I think some of that will depend on what the media do to him. If they spend another two years, as the media did with the Russian collusion thing, for example, you know, I look at what MSNBC and CNN did in that period, and I just thought, really? You're going to go on a two-year rampage about Russian collusion, and then it turns out that at the end of it, pretty well it's a nothing burger, and you wonder why Trump hates you all. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a two-way street to a degree. Yeah, He goads the media, the media reacts, the media uses him for ratings, for circulation numbers on newspapers. You know, he's great for traction, great for making people money. CNN made a ton of money in oh, the Trump yes, presidency. Oh, yes, they did, yes, they did. By taking a nine by taking a position of being 99% Trump bashing on their airways, which is fine. But don't be surprised if the guy that you're bashing that relentlessly comes for you. He's going to. It's his nature. He's a pugilist by nature. So, you know, I I would hope everybody, if Trump was to win again, and I I do think the chances of that are increasing, um, notwithstanding these these legal uh, threats. It's quite an extraordinary situation. It's, It's unprecedented. But if he was to win again, I would hope everyone in America has a temperature check and just goes, you know what? Let's just calm down here. Otherwise, you could end up in in total carnage. Uh, It's incumbent on everyone in that moment to, I would hope, put America first and just say, look, what are the interests of the country? He's going to be president for four more years. 
we're going to have to live with it. Are we going to do what we did last time? Well, hopefully the concern is the concern is it may not be four more years. That's the real issue. And I think that's the core of it. Let me ask you a a tough question. You you said you can't vote. You're not yet. You do have a home in L.A. Let's say you had the right Mm -hmm. vote. Who would you vote for between Biden and Trump? Um, well, it's a very interesting question because I, I, I'm you know, slightly left of centre historically. But having said that, I voted for Margaret Thatcher when she was Conservative Party leader here. Um, I voted, I think, for John Major uh, first time round as well. So I think, you know, I voted for people uh, on the right um, when they've been pretty centre, I would say, in Conservative. I've also voted for Tony Blair uh, and Gordon Brown and left to centre politicians in this country. Um, I think if Biden was running. 20 years ago, you know, there are, there are uh, clips of him on YouTube, particularly one I'm thinking about where he's talking about apartheid South Africa, and he sounds unbelievably passionate and dynamic and eloquent and impressive. If that Joe Biden was running in 2024, I think he would win quite comfortably. But he's not that Joe Biden anymore, and it's a very sad thing to watch. But Joe Biden, sadly, it's not, not about his age. I know people 10 years older than him who are twice as with it. Uh, it's about, unfortunately, his mental and physical performance. And I don't, you know, I don't care who you vote for in America. Everyone on the left and right can see. I think two thirds of Democrats now don't think it's a good idea he runs again. Yes. It is yes. a bad idea that he runs again. And I, and I think if the Democrats don't do something about this soon, they will deeply regret it. You know, I look at someone like Gavin Newsom in California, my state, when I'm living there, and he's an impressive operator. And he's half the age virtually, you know. Um, he's someone that I think would be a really interesting choice for the Democrats to put up in 2024. And what I particularly liked about him was rather than refuse to ever go on Fox, say, and just scream abuse about Fox, he went and did, he went and and he was did great. an hour with Sean Hannity. Very and he killed smart. it. Killed it. And he, he killed it also. Because, yeah. because actually, yeah, because actually someone like Sean Hannity will respect the fact that you come into his lair. And he was very respectful to him. It was a really interesting conversation. I want to see more of that in America, more attempts to try and get through this terrible, toxic, partisan divide. We have the same problem here in my country because of Brexit, which split the country in two. And it's the same kind of tribalism and toxicity. And actually, the, the, the real loser is the countries. The Britain and America are being held back I believe, by the toxic nature of political debate. So the more we can get people coming together and having old-fashioned democratic debate and then maybe going having a drink together or a cup of tea, great, let's have more of that. Okay, but I'm going to do a Piers Morgan. You didn't answer my question. We're going to be stuck with Trump and we're going to be stuck with Biden. Who, who are you casting the vote for, my friend? I'm taking the fifth. And I'll tell you why I'm taking the <laughs> okay. fifth. Because I'll tell you why. It's not, I don't think it's, it should be for a non-American citizen to say how they would vote in an American election. I wouldn't like it. If, if you started poking your nose into my elections here and say, I'm going to vote for Rishi Sunak, and if you don't, you're, I don't think that's sensible. I, I would rather observe from the outside and simply say that from what I'm looking at, A, my over, overview is, is this the best America can do next year, Biden v. Trump rerun? Because no. it, this no. is a... No, the answer is no. The answer is obviously no. Yeah, the answer is no, obviously, right? Yeah, you're a great great superpower of the world. You have 330 million people here. Most of the brightest people I know are Americans. How can it be that you're heading down a line where you've got a – on one side, you have an incumbent president who looks like he barely knows what day it is. On the other, you have a guy facing 100 criminal charges. It is completely ridiculous. So let me start from that point, which I think this is crazy if it ends up as Biden-Trump. 
And I do think that on both sides, both parties should take a, a long, hard look at what they're doing here. And let's have some fresh blood. If it ended up being, you know, uh, Nikki Haley or DeSantis against Gavin Newsom, I think that would be great for America, actually. Yeah. I think that would be a really good a good battle, probably then of ideas and opinions rather than chronic old age against a, a, a guy accused of multiple crimes. I just think that you know, you've got to think about what this looks like to the rest of the world. Let's shift gears. Uh, you recently wrote about an old interview you did with Ru- Russell Brand, who has, of course, been mm. accused of, by sexual assault and rape by four women. Uh, I think a fifth has come forward. And that how you eerily, there were some precursors in that interview to talk about his predatory about his predatory behavior. I don't want to call it predatory at that point in the way he was talking, but certainly there was a, there was a harbinger of things to come. You know, just think, the thing about Russell Brand was he was clearly he was a recovering drug addict, monumental drug abuser, uh, heroin and all sorts of stuff. He got into some pretty dark places when he was doing that by his own admission. But he was incredibly sexually promiscuous, again, by his own admission. He was very brazen in the way he talked about sex. He boasted about sleeping with thousands of women and loved all sorts of different numbers of women in his bed and so on. So he was very, very brazen about it um so i think that you know where we are now is his past catching up with him and the question then becomes these accusers have come forward are they all telling the truth well it's very well researched journalism by the sunday times newspaper and channel 4 dispatches so these are very credible journalists done a very thorough job Uh, but at the moment almost all the accusers are remaining anonymous he has vehemently denied it Uh, and i think that the only right and proper way to go forward is is legal due process that the police should investigate this properly now uh, and they should see whether they they can establish if a crime has been committed at the moment it seems like he's being cancelled on the word of accusers and i just have a i have an intrinsic problem with that generally with any accusations that are made about anyone of any kind i just believe due process should matter and accusers are not automatically to be believed and not automatically victims or survivors. And all this language matters because what accusers do is they make allegations and the person on the receiving end of them should be entitled to defend themselves. And the only real way you could do that, I think, is in a, a court of law and a proper police investigation. Let's shift to one of your favorite topics, uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. I'm just <laughs> going to say, finish this. Finish the sentence. Obviously, you, your history of talking about them is well documented. It, it, it caused the abrupt end of your uh, run on Good Morning Britain. You stormed off, which I loved, by the way, one of the great TV moments of all time. <laughs> so I'm just going to leave, leave it as an open-ended sentence. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, go. Uh, I think increasingly irrelevant. Um, and I think the reason for that is that they... They decided to gamble that trashing their families on both sides, but mainly the royal family, calling them a bunch of, you know, racist, uh, uncaring scumbags uh, for vast financial gain, would be a sensible move for their longer-term brand. And actually, it's turned out to be the opposite. The truth is that people don't like public figures who just make money out of trashing their families. And I think that. You know, it's a, it's been awful to watch, actually, especially with Prince Philip dying and then the Queen dying, you know, all these terrible things going on with the royal family. And they've got these two yapping away from their California mansion about how awful the royal family is. 
and um, and making a number of unsubstantiated allegations they've not been able to support. So I think it's all uh, look. It's a family. It's a family bust up, but unfortunately, they're the most famous family in the planet. And as a result, everyone has gorged on the entrails of this family bust up. Um, but the the ultimate losers, I think, will be uh, Meghan and Harry uh, because I think they don't have any other stick. And they've been dropped by all their employers one by one because they have no other uh, stick to do to make money. Once once you've trashed the royal family eighteen times what else is there left to say they don't even see them anymore so there's no new material so i think it's uh it's been awful to watch i think their popularity is very very low in this country it's pretty low in america yes, from all the very polls low. i see very low and it'll take it'll take a miracle for them to turn it around because i'm not sure anybody wants to hear much of else of what they want to talk about i mean if, well you know they preach about the environment from elton john's private jet i mean there's a kind of absurdity to the positions they take uh, and the one guarantee is you can bet your life they'll be doing the complete opposite in their own lives to what they're preaching the rest of us to do. So I think they are damaged, tarnished goods. And even Ari Emanuel, who's now taking care apparently of Meghan Markle and repping her, has got an unbelievably difficult job to to revive this brand, I think. Yeah, I'm a brand guy. I, I It's incredibly damaging. I don't know what I would do to turn around. And we both know Ari is a talented guy, but sometimes brands are just damaged and they're irreparable. And I think hers is... What do you think happened to him? Do you think he just got so so taken with a woman that he just... Did you see anything early on in... Because you've been covering these guys for years and, and doing it with the, with whimsy and with intellect and with fun. Um, did you see anything early on that showed you this guy might go off the reservation? I think that he... Look, I don't underestimate the impact of losing his mother and that being a huge global news story for a long period of time. Of course, it's going to have an effect on him. But I do think he's he's tended towards victimhood. And then he met somebody in Meghan Markle who knows how to monetize victimhood and seems to be particularly skilled at playing the victim and getting people to pay lot, large amounts of money for her to talk about it. And I think he's got sucked into that vortex. And it's a real shame because he used to be... You know, my brother-in-law taught him at Santa's Military Academy and said he was an excellent soldier and mucked in with the lads. They all liked him, very popular. He was hugely popular with the British people. But now he's not um, because nobody likes nobody likes a perennial whiner. No. And he's become a real whiner, a real virtue signaler, and someone who wants to constantly play the victim from an £11 million or dollar mansion in California. And people are like, they're in a cost of living crisis and come out of a pandemic. They don't want to hear two renegade royals whining all the time about how awful their lives are when they're living in unparalleled luxury compared to 99% of the world. So I think Harry's not the brightest bulb in the tulip patch, as we would say. <laughs> and I think he's met someone who's extremely damaged herself and manipulative and has got her claws into him and is milking that royal brand for all she's worth. But I think they've now hit a plateau where I'm not sure what else there is left to say. I want to go back to your brand and where we started and your brand, which has been so adept at working the media, understanding the ups and downs, taking the downs, turning them into ups, not giving a shit. There's a guy who's become kind of a, a media firebrand in this country that reminds me a lot of you, and that's Dave Portnoy. Have you had any connections oh, with yeah. him? I like Dave, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, it, yeah he, but I got him on to debate whether cricket is better than baseball recently, and it went exactly how you might imagine. Yeah. <laughs> but he's a guy that understands. He even just last week, so that the Washington Post wrote a piece on him, and he had the reporter on the phone taping the reporter and just goes on, mm. just 
goes on the offensive, 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 mm. and doesn't give a shit and has built a real, real powerful, I don't want to say bulletproof brand for himself, but as I said, he reminds me of a, a little bit of a, he's got a little Piers Morgan in him. Well, you know what? I think that there are, there are so many people right now who do give a shit about absolutely everything and who take everything personally. They're offended by everything. And, and they're kind of drifting around in this really quite fragile state of mind. And I think the world probably needs more people like me and Dave Portland to just go, you know, there's another way to do this, guys. You can just not care so much about every tiny perceived slight. You can not be offended by everything. You can just crack on with life. Um, and I think that kind of what we used to call in Britain the stiff upper lip is actually beginning to make a bit of a comeback. It was a very interesting uh, science that came out last week, I think from Cambridge, that said that one of the problems for young people today may be that they simply are exposed to too much stuff about mental health, about depression, about these issues and this issue, the constant overload, plus all the dopamine uh, effect of all the videos they're watching from war zones and, and all this stuff. The, the combined effect of all this is they, they, they spend most of their day thinking there's something wrong with them and looking for, for proof of that. When in fact, what you need to do in life, my most effective tool is when there's something bad going on, distract yourself. Find something better. Find something positive. Find something else that you can do. You know, one of my great quotes uh, was a guy called Sir Roger Bannister who broke the four-minute mile, mm -hmm. the first guy to break the four-minute mile. And he was a junior doctor at the time, an amateur runner. And I met him because where I live in London, he used to live in the same square as me. And he turned up at the 200th anniversary. And I said to him, in all your time, uh, did you ever have a motivational motto? And he went, I did, actually. He said it was from the African bush, anonymous. And it went something like this. He said, when a gazelle wakes up in the African bush, it knows that it has to outrun the fastest lion or it's going to get killed. And when a lion wakes up in the African bush, it knows it has to outrun the slowest gazelle or it's not going to eat mm -hmm. and it will die. So either way, when you wake up in the African bush, you better start running. <laughs> and I, I love that. I love that as a life template. You're like it. I'm like it. You know, you've got to just make the most of it. You know, we're here for a relatively short period of time. Uh, and actually spending most of your waking time on earth, whining about your lot in life or feeling like the world's out to get you or thinking there's something wrong with you when there isn't, all these things are just negative energy wasting your time. Why be like that? Why not be actually a bit more on the front foot? Get after it. You know, it's um, it's something you can change yourself if you have the right mental approach to it. I would love the whole mental health debate to be split now between mental health and mental illness. It seems to me people with genuine mental illness are getting lost in the wash, and people who are other, pretty well mentally healthy need to be shown how to how to use that and to be really positive. And what we need to get away from is this this weird woke ravaged virtue signaling nonsense where people think that the best way to get on in life is to play the victim and to almost celebrate weakness and failure. I don't buy that, and nor does Dave Portney. And nor, actually, I think, does someone like you. He's one of the toughest guys I know in a very <laughs> tough city in a tough business, you know? It's like you've got you to gotta show a bit yeah. of steely streak. And, you know, my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, they had that through necessity, they were living through world wars, you know. So I think we've got to, for want of a better phrase, uh, toughen up a bit. 
That's a great way to end. Piers Morgan, as I said, I'm a fan. Thank you for letting me sit in a few times for you back in the days of when you were at CNN. That was a great honor. It was great. And you are you great. are you are a scholar and a gentleman. Thank you, my friend. Great to talk to you. All the best, Donnie.